0: Is it possible that people sit among us that have never had that encounter with the saving grace of Jesus? Is it possible? I find my identity in the person of the Lord Jesus. My life is hid with God in Christ. Today's message from Harvest Church of God titled, Is your identity with Jesus or with the world? Pastor Jerry Irwin preaches a message asking, do you really know Jesus? Chapter 12, verse 12 through 17. And they sought to lay hold on him. Who is they? The magistrates, the rulers in Jerusalem. Things have heated up in Jerusalem, you might say. And this rabbi that has gone throughout for the last three years teaching and preaching in all of Judea has uh, now come to Jerusalem. And he's in the temple, he's teaching every day, and he's uh, doing miraculous things. You know, the Bible says in Acts 10, 38, how God anointed Jesus, anointed Jesus, the anointed Jesus, who went about doing good, healing all that were sick and oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. God was with him, and miraculous things were done in people's lives. And back in Jerusalem, there was a great problem among a certain sect of uh, the Pharisees because they had believed so rigidly in law-keeping and law-observing that this rabbi was a, quite an eccentric person to them. He uh, pulled, that his disciples plucked ears of corn on Sunday and, or Saturday and eat, which was the Sabbath, and they objected to that. They objected to several things. His healing on the Sabbath day was another of their objections. But the greatest of the objections was his claim to be the Son of God. That was the greatest objection. They sought to lay hold on him, but they feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. And they left him and went their way. What parable are they talking about that angered them so? What was the parable that upset them so? Well, Jesus began speaking a parable about a husbandman who owned a vineyard. And he uh, was very proud of that vineyard, and he loved that vineyard, and he expected to get good fruit and good grapes from that vineyard. So he had people there that served uh, to take care of the vineyard. And uh, when time came to harvest the vineyard, he sent a servant there and said, go and Uh, collect the fruit that we're expecting from the vineyard. And the Bible said that they, when they saw him, the servants were angered that he had come, and they scorned him and they chased him away. And so the owner of the vineyard sent another servant, and the Bible said they took rocks and threw at him and ran him off and wouldn't receive him. And the Bible said they, they, they finally even killed a servant that was sent to them, Uh, about the status of the fruit and the vineyard. And the parable goes like this. So the owner of the vineyard said, I will send my only son. Surely they will receive him. Surely they'll believe him when he comes. And the Bible said that Jesus told the parable. This is a parabolic illustration, a story, a metaphor. And he said, so the owner sent his son. And that the evil, wicked servants... Instead of receiving the Son, they murdered him and killed him. Well, you can see the all the similarity. Do you see what's going on here? It's a a picture of God sending his son into the world to harvest souls. It's the intent of God that souls should be saved. It's not the intent of God nor the will of God that any should be lost, but that everybody should come to repentance. Do you believe that? Do you believe God wants everybody to be saved? Do you believe that God sent His Son for everybody? Well, that scripture there actually says that, that God sent His Son into the world to redeem them that all of their lifetime were under the yoke and bondage of sin. In fact, by Jesus' own confession, He said, My mission is to come to the world and seek and save that which is lost. And it's not the will of God that any perish. So then what that says to us is that if any person goes to hell they will go there out of the will of God. That if any person is lost and doesn't go to heaven it will grieve the heart of God. It is not the will nor the intent nor the wish of God that any body should perish or that any soul should perish but rather that all can anybody say all? all? But all should come to repentance. So then we see the gracious invitation by our loving heavenly Father that wants everybody to be saved. So much that he sent his Son. But the truth is, as Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, that you whom you slew. Speaking of this same group, this same group that wants to lay hold upon Jesus, wants to do him harm, and... Peter preached on the day of Pentecost this Jesus whom you slew. Whom you slew. Boy, that's pretty direct, isn't it? And here we're finding out because of the parable that he spoke. In verse 12, are you seeing it? Because of the parable that he spoke against them, and it made them so mad that they left him and went their way. Well, Verse 13, that would have been good if they would just taken their way, but that wasn't the end of it. And they send unto him, verse 13, certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his words. In other words, they want to lay a snare and they want to trick him into making a misstatement or a misstep. They want to find in his language something that they can use to discredit him to get him in trouble with the Romans so that they will crucify him, or with the common people so that he'll lose his influence among them. Are you seeing that? So they sent these Pharisees and they sent the Herodians. I'll tell you who they are in just a few minutes. The Pharisees and the Herodians, and they were come, they said to Jesus, Master. Master, the word is rabboni, it means literally teacher teacher, rabbi, teacher, we know that thou art true and carest for no man, but thou regardest not the person of men, but you teach the way of God in truth. We know that you're not influenced by man's opinions. You just teach the way of God. You're not influenced and you're not swayed by the man's ideology or philosophies, but he said, you regard not the person of men, but you teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? So what we've got here is flattering words. (laughs) My dad used to say, be careful when they lather you up because next comes the razor. A better way to say that is don't be moved by flattering words because a lot of folks start in a commendational way trying to flatter you and make you feel as if they are impressed with you, but their real intent is to get to something they want to say later. Beware of flattering words. And these men have come to trap Jesus. They've come to ensnare Him. They've come to discredit Him. They've set a trap for Him. But they start out by saying, we know that you're a true prophet. We know the words that you speak are true. And call Him, in in a way, Master. Master, as if they are subservient to Him in some way, but they're not. You see, words are tools. Words are tools. We use them to communicate. We use them to give instruction. We use them for all different kind of reasons, to console. We, we use them sometimes to lament and cry. We use them in all kind of ways. But when they're used by people who want to do harm to the Lord Jesus and the person of, of uh, the Lord, then that's, that's an evil thing. But you, you be, don't be deceived by the words. And let me just give you a warning. Don't, don't be deceived by flatteries. Sometimes people will follow that up with something that is very, very tough and very uh, disrespectful. And he said, is it lawful? And they got a question. They say, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Shall we give or shall we not give? But he, Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, why tempt ye me? Bring me a penny that I may see it. And they brought it. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and this superscription? And they said unto him, It's Caesar's. And Jesus answering said unto them, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. They thought they had asked him a question that he couldn't answer without getting in trouble. They thought they had presented him with a situation to where he would ensnare himself, whether he said either way. And he came out with a response that even his dejectors and even his despisers and even the evildoers marveled, much like folks that heard him one time and said, never a man spake like this man. Can you believe that the Lord Jesus baffled them The conspiracy that was in their heart, the Bible said they wanted to catch him. It has the idea of hunting or of setting a trap to catch uh, one's prey. They wanted to outsmart Jesus and get him to say something that would offend Rome and get him killed. They wanted him to say something that the common people would turn away from him. But on the contrary, people who love in a Christian way think no evil. You mean there is a love that Christian people are supposed to have? Sure, it's the opposite of what you see these people doing. They hate. Hate and love are two powerful forces, two powerful motivators. Hate and love can unify. People can hate so much that they join in on the hatred. They can also love so much that they join in on the love. Both of them are attractors. They they gain momentum. When these conspirators came to Jesus, hate was their motivation. To kill was their incentive. To destroy, to discredit was at their heart's real desire. But I want to tell you in the church, there should never be anything like that. I'm listening. Hatred has no place in the church of the living God. Hatred has no place in the body of Christ. Hatred has no place in the body that we call the Lord Jesus, the the people of His hand. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 13 and 5, the Bible said, Thinketh love, thinketh no evil. Literally, that phrase means takes no worthless inventory. Takes no worthless inventory. In other words, is not looking for a speck in their brother's eye when there's a saw log in theirs. That's what Jesus was talking about when he said, why are you looking for that piece of dust in your brother's eye when you have a saw log in your eye? Pretty sobering, isn't it? And yet people look at other people so many times as if trying to find some fault or find some some discernment about them. And that is so unloving. It's not the love of which is spoken of here. Real love does not remember injury. Real love believes what it hears about the goodness of others. Love looks for no fault in others. If that attitude were practiced in the church, it would solve 90% of the church's problems. If love really prevailed, if we really had Christian love, love knows no end to its endurance. It can outlast anything. Love is the one thing that still remains when all else has fallen. Love endureth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things. Come on, somebody, that's the Word of God. I said, that is the pure, plain Word of God. It's a positive thing. It's something that is a blessing to families and a blessing to marriages. And it's a blessing in the church when we love one another. And Jesus said, you ought to love one another. And Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, by the love that you have one for another. In other words, the label that we wear, Christian, has love written across it in big numbers, big letters. It is the number one thing that is the influence of the church in this world in which we are. We can never fulfill the mission God gave us to do without love. We can never be what God wants us to be without love. You see, we're so guilty at times of letting the world identify us. And you're very foolish to seek identity in the world. The world will mislead you. The world will deceitfully abuse you. The world will tell you one thing when they really think another thing. The world will lead you in a direction that will cause you hurt and cause you harm. But love, on the other hand, will always build up. Always build up. Jesus had to deal with this problem in these Pharisees and these Herodians. They were religious lost people. What? What? They were religious lost people. They had no spiritual discernment whatsoever. But they were part of a society of people that were observing rituals and laws and ceremonies. Every morning when they got up, they said the Shema. They prayed a prayer three times a day. It had 18 different variations in that prayer. And you could pray one of them, Here ye, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. They they would recite that. When When you see them bumping their heads against the Western wall when they're praying we used to call that the wailing wall it's not the wailing wall anymore it's now called the Western wall because they're not wailing anymore but when you see them Michelle button their heads against the wall you know what they're doing I ask them I said why do you butt your head against the wall while you're while you're praying I said, so we can stay awake So we can stay awake. I need to put a wall up somewhere, somewhere. who People that have trouble trying to stay awake during church, you can go to the wall and butt your head, maybe. You mean they have to butt their heads so they won't go to sleep, so what they're reading really don't mean anything to them. So what their eyes are seeing and their minds are comprehending as the Word of God isn't working. Because if they don't butt their head, they'll go sound asleep because they're not really paying attention to what they're saying. Is it possible that Christians can lull themselves to sleep by saying the same old phrases and the same old repetitions over and over again, and they do it so that they can do it in their sleep? Wow. Wow. All of those laws, 18 of them, they pray three times a day. One of the, one of the r- real entertaining things was on flights to Israel that I've made several times. And you fly through time zones and you fly out of one day into the next day because you're going to the other side of the world. And every person of the Pharisees and the people of that persuasion They have a phylactery, and they put it on their forehead right here. And they've got leather straps that go from it. You'll find it in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And they'll take those leather things, tongs, and they'll wrap them around their wrist and hold them in their wrist while they keep scriptures in this little box that's put on their forehead, and they call it the phylactery. And it contains scriptures. And they carry them around with them. And when God said, bind them upon your heart, they bind themselves with leather so that they can keep the Word of God in their mind and can bind them to their heart with this leather. Now that's the kind of world Jesus came into to preach salvation by grace. That's the kind of world Jesus came into A very religious people but they didn't really know God and didn't really know and have a spiritual discernment of God and all the things of God. They had rules and they had customs, and they had tradition, but they didn't have God. And that's why you could call these people religious lost men. There's a, there's a book by Greg Rochelle. You need to read it probably. It's called The Christian Atheist. The Christian Atheist. Pastor, that's an oxymoron. Those two words don't go together. An atheist Christian? What in the world is an atheist Christian? It's a Christian who says he knows God. Well, you get the picture, don't you? It's a person that has the label Christian, but doesn't really know God, doesn't know Him, doesn't read His Word, never prays doesn't go to his house to worship, doesn't do the things that Christian people do. So in his actions, he acts as if God does not exist. But by his mouth, he would say, I'm a Christian. But he acts as if God is dead. Is it possible for people to go through form and ritual, to go through exercises of lifting up hands and and singing the spiritual songs and never know the Lord Jesus? I remember a young man standing here that sang for us not too many years ago. He's music minister at a great church in our area. He's quit that now, and he sings with the Gold City Quartet. And he stayed in this pulpit right here, and he said, many, many years I sung about a God I did not know. Many, many years I sung about and wrote songs about a God that I really didn't know. I just love the music. I just love gospel music. I was raised up that way, and I all of my life said, I just, I just love to sing, but I didn't know the one I was singing about. And he said, one night while waiting for them to come pick me up to carry me to go sing some more, he said, God had an encounter with me. And I realized that I was a Christian atheist. I sung the songs, I looked the part, even served in leading churches in worshiping a God that I did not know. But he said, I fell, fell on my face in that living room of that house and it said, I gave my heart and life to God that night I was preaching a revival many years ago and a lady was playing for the invitation while I was asking people to come for salvation. She got up off of that stool, Olita, and she came over to where I was and she looked at me and she said, I need to be saved. What? I need to be saved. She said this, she said, I've taught junior girls Sunday school class for years and years. I've played this piano for years and years, revival after revival, Sunday after Sunday, but said, I have never known Jesus the way you preach tonight that I can know Jesus. Is it possible that people sit among us that have never had that encounter with the saving grace of Jesus? Is it possible? Hey, there are a lot of people that hang around church just because they like church. They like to hear you preach. They like to hear you sing. Ashton, they love to hear you sing, girl. They just like the music, just like what goes on in church. But as far as ever having that experience, that salvation by grace justified and peace with God and regeneration and become a new creature in Christ Jesus, they've never done that. Never done that. So it's possible then to be very religious but yet be lost and not really know God. That's what these guys were. They challenged the Lord Jesus with this. They asked Jesus about paying tribute to Caesar. Now, tribute was a poll tax. And everybody paid it. And you know how much it was? You'd liked it back then. Boy, the poll tax was cheap back then. One penny. A denarius. One denarius was the poll tax. And I'm going to tell you something. It aggravated to no end these Israelis who had to carry around a coin with a Caesar's picture on it and the Roman insignia and the inscription all over it declaring that Caesar was God and that his son Augustus was a god also and the rightful ruler of the world? How would you like that? If you're an Israeli and you're a a covenant with God and you're praying these prayers every morning, the Lord our God is one God. And here's a, a Roman that said, hey, the currency has got my name on it and the currency says I'm God. And you can only pay for what you want to buy with my coins that have my picture that tell everybody that I'm God, not your God. Boy, that penny would burn a hole in my pocket, wouldn't it, you? Brother, you're talking about if I knew God and I worship God, to carry around that thing in my pocket would just incense me. Randy, I'd have a tough time carrying that penny around. You might say, I wouldn't have a penny to my name. (laughs) Wow. They come to him and they tell him, we know you're a great man of integrity. You're a great kind man. You're wonderful. You, You teach the ways of God. But we need to ask you a question. The challenge is, is it right for us to pay tribute to Caesar? Now, the Pharisees believed that religion was superior to the state and that the religion was of greater value over the state. But the Herodians believed that the state was superior to religion and that the state was dominant over religion. What are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying these folks didn't agree among themselves. I'm telling you that these folks had come to do Jesus harm, but boy, they didn't have any, any kind of agreement among themselves at all. They believed totally different. And one of them was very religious, but the Herodians were not. They, they were what? what were they? Let me tell you who Herodians were. They were people that believed like Herod. Herod, the Bible said, was a tetriarch. And Herod cooperated with the Romans. He loved the fact that you needed to pay tax because that meant money in his pocket. That meant that he felt like everybody Ought to be taxed, and everybody ought to send money to to Caesar because Caesar builds roads for us. And as long as we've got got Roman uh, occupation, we've got protection. Nobody's going to come in here and overthrow us because they're the ones that overthrew us. And we're going to be all right because the Roman economy all over the world—they they send wood, uh, goods, and uh, things all over the world. So we're kind of got life better because of the, of the Romans being here, so I'm not opposed to paying the tax. I, I'm, I'm more for it. And folks who agreed with that were called Herodians. Well, I wouldn't have been a Herodian because I don't like paying taxes. I wouldn't have been a very good Herodian pastor. Amen. Amen especially to a despot ruler who thinks he's God himself. I would particularly object to that, Susan. That'd be a problem for me. For the Herodians and the Pharisees to be together in this, they, through hatred, they sought to trap the Lord Jesus so he would lose face and so that he would lose influence and lose credibility. But the Lord gave them a very interesting answer. And the first thing he did, he he wanted to use an illustration. And he said to them, somebody bring me a penny. Bring me a penny? You mean Jesus didn't even have a penny? Didn't have a penny to his name. Besides, I don't think he would have carried around that penny anyway. He said, I don't have a penny. Could somebody loan me a penny till I could... I'll give it back to you when I get through answering this question. Can I borrow a penny from somebody? When I'm reminded of that, when I, when I look at that scripture of the pitiless Jesus, that might have been a better title for this sermon, the penniless Jesus. Are you a, a penniless? Jesus was penniless. And the scripture tells us this. It's beautiful, Natalie. It says this, he was rich. Yet for your sakes, he became poor. That we, through his poverty, might be made rich. Isn't that great? So then, Carlos, you can sing, I'm a poor, poor, rich man. I used to wonder about that song when they'd sing it when I was a kid. I'm a poor, poor, rich man. I'm a poor, poor, rich man. All you see, it really happened to me. I'm a millionaire. I know that I'm poor. I say it like Alabama poor, but I got a lot more than any rich folks that I know. I've got a home in the sky. Money can't buy. I'm a poor, poor rich man. Isn't that crazy? A poor, poor, rich man. That seems like another oxymoron, doesn't it? Jesus said, would somebody please just bring me a penny? Jesus said, why do you put me to the test about this? In fact, in Luke chapter 20 and verse 20, and they watched him and sent forth spies. He's answering his own question why they while they had asked him that question, which should feign themselves just men that they might take hold of his words, that so they might deliver him under the power and the authority of the governor. How do you like that phrase, but he knowing? You think Jesus knows? Do you think when we receive this offering today that Jesus knew when you dropped that tithe envelope in that, Man, he knew your heart. Do you believe this morning that when you said in the flood waters, he's holding back the waters? He's the fourth man in the fire. Do you believe Jesus knew what was going on in your heart when you said that? When you sung that song and you did that worship, did God know? Does Jesus know, does Jesus discern when we put our offerings in, when we, when we pray, does He really know our heart? He really does. He really knows our heart. The Bible says in Hebrews 4 and 13, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in His sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Somebody bring me a penny, Jesus said. When they brought that coin to Jesus, he he said, whose image and whose inscription is on that penny? And they said, Caesar's. On the front of the denarius, there was an engraving of the head of Caesar Tiberius. And that was the image. And in Latin, on the front of that coin were the words, Tiberius Caesar, divine Augustus, son of Augustus. On the back of that coin, in Latin, were the words, Pontifex Maximus, high priest of the Roman nation. High priest of the Roman nation. Those were the inscriptions that were written on that coin. It's no wonder religious Jews bristled when they were told you have to use this to pay. Jesus answers that question in this verse, but not in the way they expected. They thought there were only two possible answers that he could give, and one of them would trap him. Either it's right or it's wrong to give tribute to Caesar. They were asking Jesus. Those were the two. Render unto Caesar, he said, the things that are Caesar's, and render unto God the things that are God. When Jesus held up that denarius, When he held up that penny, he saw the people confirm that it had been the image and the inscription of Caesar on it. In that day, coins that bore the image of a ruler were considered to be the property of that person. So Jesus is saying, this penny belongs to Caesar. His answer was, if it belongs to Caesar and Caesar wants it back, then give it back to Caesar. Hallelujah. In that statement, Jesus made a case for the legitimacy of the state. I would just remind you that we have an obligation to honor the state, the government, in our lives. Romans chapter 13 tells us that the people who are in government are officers of the Lord, servants of the Lord. Did you know that? Did you know that the Word tells us in Romans 13 to be submitted and to be obedient to the laws of our land and the laws of our our country? Did you know that Romans 13 tells us that they rule by the power of God, that God gives them the, the authority to be who they are, and that God put them in place, and that we're to be civil and we're to be peaceful and we're to obey the laws of the land as long as they don't conflict with the laws of God. Not an amen in the house. Thank you, Gretchen. Jesus is saying, give Caesar his money because to bear his image it belongs to him. But your devotion belongs to God because you bear his image. You are his. What? I am made in the image Of God? Yes. I am owned by God? Yes. You are not your own. You're bought with a price. So if you're bought with a price and you bear the image, hallelujah, then render unto God what is God's. What does that mean? That means I find my identity in the kingdom of God. I find my identity in the person of the Lord Jesus. My life is hid with God in Christ. I am who God says I can be. I am what God's Word says I am. I'm a child of God. I'm a citizen of the heavenly. I am Lord of God. I'm not my own. I'm on my way to His presence. He owns my life. He owns me. He owns my future. He is my God, and I am His child, and I will not let this world identify me. Social Security calls me a number. The post office calls me occupant, resident. The world would try to identify you I was riding around this week and my phone buzzed and General Motors sent me a message. The tire pressure in your left rear tire is low. You need to stop at a service station and put two pounds of air in your tire. What? What? You know the tire pressure in the right, left rear of my truck tire? Why are y'all sitting there looking at me like that? Well, if they know the tire pressure in my left rear tire, I promise you they know a whole lot more about me than that. And as I see these tribulation clouds gathering and I see this world preparing for a one world government and I see the kingdoms of this world merging into a one world ruler situation. You see that, Pastor? Yes, I see that as clear as day. Clear as day. Would you have ever thought that the government of this country could put churches out of business. And did you think churches would ever take it? Things have happened over the last few months that you thought never would happen. Brother Sam, we're living in times that we've never lived in before. And I believe the Bible is right there's going to be some things in the end time. And he said, when you see these things, when you see them come to pass, don't hang your head and look down, look up. I said, look up. What all of that is setting the stage for, we're on a rehearsal here is what we're on. And what all of that is preparing us for is to accept the fact that one day you'll be given a number with which you can neither buy nor sell unless you've got that number. And this world is gearing up for that. If they know the air pressure in my left rear tire, then I promise you they know a whole lot more than you think about you. And in order to be able to control, they've got to have ability to supervise all of that data about you. And could it be that we could come to a time that before you could receive some kind of a vaccination or something for a cure from a dreaded disease, that you've got to take that number? Could that happen? Heretofore, I couldn't see how that could possibly happen, but now in the last few months, I see how that can happen. Pastor, you're scaring me. No, I don't want to scare you. I just want you to know that your redemption is drawing nigh, and it's not a time for you to be, find your identity in this world. We're not of this world. We're in this world, but we're not of this world. Why are you getting so wrought up about what's going on in this world? You need to be concerned about what's going on in the heavenlies. What you need to be concerned about is that the Lord is coming soon. Amen. Don't let the world identify you, and don't let the world put a label on you and, and tell you you're this and you're that and you're the other and intimidate and force you. Hey, the thing for you to do is to look up and into the eyes of our Heavenly Father. And say, the Lord is the strength of my life. The Lord is my light and the Lord is my salvation. Of whom shall I fear or of what shall I be afraid? I will not fear what man shall do unto me. The Lord is my light and my salvation. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help comes from the Lord. He that keepeth me will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is the light of our salvation. We need to rejoice today in the fact that he's in control and he is in charge. I just told you that Romans 13 tells you that by permission governors govern, by permission presidents sit in office, by permission all of that happens. It's the permission of our almighty God. Amen. Amen. So what should we do then, Pastor? Put your trust in the Lord Jesus. Put your trust in the Word of God. Put your trust in the God of our salvation. Stand with me, please. What did the Bible say these people did when Jesus answered them like that? The Bible said they marveled and barked, then they just walked away. They just walked away. I don't want you to just walk away. I want you before you leave here today to renew that commitment and say, Lord, my trust is in you. Lord, my faith is in you. You're my source. You're my healer. You're my provider. You're my Jehovah-Jireh. You're my Jehovah-Shalom. You're my, my peace. Hallelujah. You're my joy. You're my strength. You're the strength of my life. And God, I'm not looking to anything this world is going to do. I'm looking for what you're going to do. I'm looking for what you're going to do. Because I know that in that hour, you said, in that hour, in that hour, in that hour, said, don't you worry about what you're going to say or what you're going to have to commit to. Don't worry about wh- when they drag you up before courts and magistrates. Don't worry. Why is that, Jesus? He said, because the Holy Ghost. Don't try to write out what you're going to say. He said, don't do that. He said, just when that time comes, the Holy Ghost will give you an answer and it will tell you what you need to say. Hallelujah. Don't worry, he said. And he didn't say if they bring you before magistrate. He said when they bring you before. In other words, he's saying that it's going to come to that. It's going to come to that for this pastor. It's going to come to that for these singers. It's going to come to that for you. It's going to come to that for this church. You're going to have to make us stand. You're going to have to decide who you are, who you are, where your identity is, and where your allegiance is. Where do you stand? you'll read this book it's full of instances where people took a stand for what they believed those hebrew children they looked nebuchadnezzar the strongest most powerful man on earth and they said our god is able to deliver us but if he does not then we have purposed in our hearts that we're not going to defile our bodies with the king's meat and the king's drink we're not going to bend and bow to the music we're not going to offer homage to a pagan god to a ruler we're not going to do that so whatever has to be has to be we'll find our identity in god we'll find our identity in the word of his mouth praise god when daniel was spied on by some folks that tried to trick him you know the story and the king made a proclamation without really thinking it through and he said anybody that doesn't worship when you hear this music You'll be cast into the lions then, and the Bible said Daniel prayed three times a day, so it was easy to catch him. I'd like to make it easy for the devil to catch us. I said I'd like to make it easy for him to catch us because I'm going to be where I'm supposed to be. I'm going to be doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Ha at the time I'm supposed to be doing it because that's what faithfulness is. Being where you're supposed to be, when you're supposed to be there, at the time you're supposed to be there. That's called faithfulness. So I'm going to make it easy to be caught. If you want to catch me, you can catch me. Daniel prayed. And the folks went and told the king, said, oh, king, did you know Daniel didn't obey you? He's your friend. He's your buddy. But the law is the law now. And he's broke the law. And oh, the king said to Daniel, said, oh, Daniel, I'm so sorry. I apologize to you. I didn't think that thing through. They trapped me into this. I'm so worried. And Daniel said, oh, don't you worry about that. The God that I serve, he will sustain me and he will keep me and I'm not worried about it, and you shouldn't be either." And the Bible said, and the king spent a restless night. And the next morning, Michael, he creeped down the stairs much like I do. And he hollered before he got to the bottom, to the door and that and said, oh, Daniel, is your God able to deliver you out of the mouths of the lions. Oh, yes. And Daniel woke up and wiping sleep out of his eyes, said, Oh king, the Lord, oh, yes. this yes. night hath sent his angel and shut the mouths of the lions. So, what are you saying, Pastor? Believe God. Trust God. Trust God. Trust God. Believe His Word. Be faithful. Be faithful. And God will reward that. I said, God will reward that. Thank you, Lord, for letting us be in your house today. Thank you, God, for the, all the promises of God that are yay and amen. Thank you, God that in the midst of Herodians and Pharisees, that your word is true and that your person of the Lord Jesus always prevails. And Lord, we just know that you never fail. You've never left us. You've never failed us. And in Jesus' name, we pledge our allegiance to you today, O God. Keep us and lead us and guide us and direct us, O God. Keep our steps and help us with an humble heart to love you and praise you and live for you and be your people. Dismiss us from this place, but not your sight. In Jesus' powerful holy name, amen and amen and amen. God bless you, and God, go with you Is my prayer. I love every one of you. Love you very much.